Thank you for tuning in to Adversity University, and welcome to class. Hey, everyone, it's Sean, and I have to apologize. Gary and I took some time off. It's been a little while since we've released one of these episodes, but I think today's was great, and I'm really excited to see what you guys think. We dive into a lot of cool topics. Uh, today's guest is a veteran of the Army, is now working in some cryptocurrency medical outreach hybrid, which was cool to learn about. Um, but before we get into that, I kind of want to talk about a situation that has affected myself uh, and the other alumni and current players at Robert Morris University, where I graduated. Um, for those of you who don't know, out of the blue, a couple weeks ago, they, or maybe even just one week ago, they announced that they were canceling the men's and women's Division I hockey programs. And it comes as a shock for a lot of reasons. Uh, I guess, you know, the short version of it is they were the most successful teams on campus nationally. Uh, hockey and lacrosse are really the only teams that have a chance to compete for a national championship. We have, you know, 16 Division One sports teams at the school, but hockey and lacrosse are really the only ones that would ever stand a chance against, you know, the best teams in the country. And the women's team had just made the Elite Eight of the NCAA tournament. They won their conference. The men's team was nationally ranked. I think they were, you know, top 20 for the longest time that that program has ever been uh, ranked that high. They hosted the Frozen Four in Pittsburgh this year. And, you know, there was a lot of work that had gone in the previous 17 years of, you know, every class heard the same thing. You get there and the, the coaching staff tells you, you know, your four years are going to end, um, but the program will be around forever. So, leave it better than you found it. And, you know, just out of the blue to cancel the program, um, you know, it, it feels like a slap in the face to everyone, men's and women's side, staff, players, um, you know, even, even the fans and anyone who's ever put in that work to make the program better, they just, you know, they, they don't care. And more information has been coming out about it since then. And the way it's being handled by, you know, the university's president is just appalling. It's they didn't even have a vote with the board of trustees, um, which led Pittsburgh Steelers general manager and vice president Kevin Colbert to step down from the Robert Morris University Board of Trustees. Um, you know, the fact that you can make such a big decision, it was just the largest donor and the president made the decision by themselves. They didn't talk to anyone else. And the timing of it really hurts too, because uh, this year due to COVID, the NCAA allowed every player to have an extra year of eligibility. So a lot of players are now staying at school an extra year, but you still have those new players coming up. And so there was already you know, too many players and not enough jobs. So the transfer portal had a record of, you know, 255 players in it for 60 teams. And now two months after that, where everyone's, you know, been finding their new spots, everyone's done recruiting. There's now a full team of athletes, men and women who have nowhere to go. And when you work your whole life for a goal and you accomplish that goal of, you know, being a division one athlete, which is literally a dream come true for so many people just to take that away without much reasoning. Uh, it, it really hurts. And, you know, it, it hasn't been handled well. They told the teams 10 minutes before the official press release that the program was going to be canceled. Uh, it gave no opportunity for fundraising, you know, which we're trying to do now, but it doesn't seem like money's an issue in the same article that they talked about canceling the program. They bragged about how they exceeded their hundred million dollar fundraising goal during the COVID year. And, you know, it's, 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 it's very shady. There have been no answers. There was a, a zoom meeting with the current athletes. And uh, I was told by someone in that meeting that there were still at least 10 people, you know, with their hands raised, you know, questions to be asked. And uh, he, 
the president just ended the Zoom, just got off. So it's just very obvious that, um, you know, the students and the athletes' interests are not important at all to this university or the president. And, um, you know, it's, it, it, it hurts. It hurts because I still know, you know, so many people there who are, who are just on the wrong end of this. Uh, Garrett, do you have any thoughts on this situation? Yeah, I didn't attend Robert Morris University, but you say it's a slap in the face for alumni and students and current whatever. Uh, I think it's a slap in the face to Division One hockey. I think it's a slap in the face to anybody that's trying to play Division One sports in general. Um, I think that it shows you, and they're not, you know, they're not the only program. Alabama Huntsville did it uh, recently, and I think that the timing and uh, you know the excuses were probably better on Alabama Huntsville's end. But for someone that wants to go to a school like now, it seems like it's almost becoming a norm of your program can just be pulled out from underneath you. And then if you raise enough money, like they'll save it. And uh, to be honest, it's bullshit. It's bullshit on the people that are supposed to be in charge for budgeting for the entire, uh, you know, school uh, athletics program. Where is the accountability for them to be able to to, to cut a program uh, this late in the year? Those kids Hopefully some of them can find a place to go, but to be honest, a lot of them probably aren't, aren't going to be able to play division one college hockey anymore. At least the kids that are at school now. Um, but there's no accountability on the institution. There's no accountability on people that are in charge of budgeting. And then, and then it just falls into the hands of alumni, um, current students, fans to try to raise money to save a program. And that's not how it should be. Yeah. It's great to have donors and money coming in to make the student athletes life uh, great and enjoyable, but if you are, uh, you know, a Division One institution and you're supposed to have programs, you need to be able to support those programs. And if you come to a point or a tail end where you don't think you can support them financially, you don't do it in June when you know school is supposed to start, and you know two months or whatever it is. Um, so I think there needs to be more accountability on that end to the president of of the school. Um, to ha whoever's in charge of budgeting for all these programs, it's bullshit and it's shady, as you mentioned, and it's disgraceful to uh, Division One college sports in general. And uh, you know, I hope that the accountability comes and, and gets them, and I think that it will, and the karma train will come around eventually. But my heart goes out to the players that are currently there, uh, the fans, the alumni. I feel terrible for what has gone on in that school. And I hope that, uh, you know, people can come out and set a standard for uh, how things like this aren't acceptable. And I don't mean that in a sense of like programs being cut. I mean, in the sense of how unprofessionally this whole entire ordeal was handled. Yeah, absolutely. You bring up a really good point. There's people whose job it is, is to manage a budget and, you know, determine, you know, the best for the university's future. And they've already made a lot of bad decisions with the money. Um, I guess, you know, I don't really need to get too into that, but that decision doesn't happen at the snap of the fingers. You know, if, if you know in December that there's a chance you may not have a program, that's when you bring it up. You, you mention it to the coach, you know, he's not going to tell the team at that point because they need to focus on what they need to focus on. But then, then it's in someone's hands where, you know, the alumni can start fundraising and, you know, you can give this thing a chance. The fact that it's just, you know, it's been, pulled out from under them in June when they have no chance to go anywhere else, gave no chance for anybody to save the program. There's, you know, I saw the Pittsburgh Penguins and another person, um, I don't remember his name, but he owns 27, you know, rinks in the area. He owns the Youngstown Phantom, which is the junior hockey team around there offered. We'll buy the rink and we'll give you the ice really cheap. Like this, this community really loves the team and supports the team and they don't want to see you know these opportunities taken away for kids that have worked so hard for it and the university and the president just simply haven't answered any of it they're they're being given lifelines and they're just ignoring it which to me just makes it so obvious that this is about something else not the hockey team and uh you know i, I don't know what it is i would love for those people, like you said, to be held accountable and have to explain this decision. It impacts so many people and they're just hiding. It really blows my mind. Um, like you said, feel terrible about it. And 
you know, I just, I hope that something can be done, but at this point, I think, you know, the damage might be too far. I, I know a couple of the men's players have already found, you know, new places to play for next year. So now the team won't even be as strong if they do, you know, somehow convince them to bring the program back. And yeah, it's just really frustrating to not have any answers for something so impactful to people who, who trusted you and who you lied to. You know, I, I was there a year ago and the new AD and the university president did nothing but talk to us about how, you know, they loved what we did in the community. We were always the teams with the highest GPAs. Like we, we were doing our part to help the university. And it's a really small school. It's like 4,000 students in Moon Township, Pennsylvania. Like the only reason that they're on the map at all is because of their sports teams, to be honest. Like if you're not from there, you would have never heard of Robert Morris University unless you've seen us compete on the national stage. And like I said, hockey and lacrosse are the only teams that do it. They're the only teams that have a chance. And I think that, you know, they are going to have a lot of really negative blowback for this. And it's just frustrating to think back on the times where the president would walk into our locker room and tell us how, you know, he was a football player himself, but after being at RMU, like hockey was his favorite sport and how he loved watching us. He loved supporting us and how important we were to the school. And, you know, they just completely lied to our faces and, you know, are giving absolutely no respect to anyone who, you know, poured out blood, sweat, and tears for that logo, for that university. So uh, a little bit of a long-winded rant there, but something, you know, very near and dear to our hearts and something that we definitely want to bring attention to because these, these people shouldn't be allowed to just hide and not have any accountability for that decision. And, you know, the more, the more pressure there is from social media and, you know, people, you know, letting them know that, we're not just going to take it lying down and, you know, we're going to fight for this program uh, is only going to help. So um, yeah. Anything else on that G? No, on a lighter note, we're back, baby. Uh, As Sean mentioned, as Sean mentioned, we took a little bit of a hiatus there. Our schedules got crazy, but uh, we plan on cranking out episodes for you guys here. Um, So be ready. Yeah. um, You know, this is really fun for us. We enjoy doing it. We love hearing what you guys think. Um, just needed a little time, uh, maybe our own little mental health break. Life got pretty crazy there. Um, both of us, you know, starting, starting the pro hockey journey and, you know, moving across the country multiple times and all of that. Uh, we just needed a little bit of a break, but I'm really excited to be back and looking forward to, you know, bringing you guys more great content because today's episode 51 and still learning new things from everybody. Um, you know, today's guest had some really cool insight on different, you know, times in his life. Uh, he brought up, how was the way he phrased it? I really liked the way he phrased it. He said, fail fast, fail often. And I like that mindset because he talks about how, you know, the fear of failing will prevent people from pursuing things that will help them in life. And the faster you fail and the more often you fail, the quicker you're going to learn, the more you're going to learn and you're going to take those steps in your life to getting where you want to be. So I think we talked about the mindset or, you know, the view of don't look at it as a failure, just look at it as another step on your development, whatever it may be. And, um, you know, just some really cool things from him today. I, I definitely don't understand all of the, the crypto stuff yet. So I'm going to need to go to his website and look that up. Garrett, what do you think about today's in- interview? Highly motivated individual in all aspects of life, which is, uh, you know, cool to, to listen to and and kind of see how he views life. Um, I would say that we're both pretty highly motivated individuals, but that guy kind of made me feel like a bum, to be completely honest with you. Uh, but it was really cool, uh, really smart as well. And uh, I think you guys are going to really enjoy this interview. Yeah, I have to give a big shout out to my friend Ian McLeod. We were you know, engineers together at Robert Morris, and now they are in medical school together. Uh, so he was the one who helped set up this interview. So big shout out to him. Uh, without any more wasted time, it was a long intro for us. Let's kick it on over to Braden Rins. Today's guest is a veteran of the Army, where he served as a chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear officer for four years. 
He was also distinguished as a battle captain staff officer and a security force platoon leader on his deployment to Kuwait in 2016. Stateside, he was a chemical response team leader. He has since started his own cryptocurrency business called Medical Pool, which we will get into later. And he is currently in med school at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine, where he is pursuing either orthopedic surgery or reconstructive plastic surgery. Thank you for joining the podcast, Braden Rintz. Hey, thanks for having me, Sean and Garrett. What's up, guys? Braden, we're excited to have you on and, uh, you know, jumping right into your story. So you moved to Florence, South Carolina in middle school with your family. What was it like growing up there? Uh, it was definitely a shock to uh, be a rising middle schooler, have no friends, be a nerdy, hyper, skitty kid. It's like, all right, let me try to find my place in like this like small country town where like everybody like already had like the really tight groups. But uh, yeah, I found uh, I found my place. It was funny. I, uh, I made friends with uh, Daniel and he he was like a kind of kind of pseudo popular like football kid. So I kind of like latched on to him, but I was probably like 115 pounds. I remember uh, he was like, oh, yeah, like you're fast. You'll be a really great wide receiver. Like come to uh, like the summer conditioning with me. I was like, sure. So, I, you know, I don't have a car. So like I drive my bike three miles like all summer to like the football conditioning, like they're, they're like barely paying any attention to me. It comes time where it's like, all right, let's pad up like halfway through the training. Like I was so small. They didn't have any pads that fit me, but like, they're just like, oh no, it's fine. Like you don't need pads. Like meanwhile, everyone's doing hitting drills. Like, nah, just do what you can. So yeah, I, I definitely failed really early. <laughs> yeah. Football without pads. I don't know how well that would go. Um, but that's a funny point you bring up because I think that a lot of people have to go through that multiple times in life where, you know, you consider moving somewhere for maybe a new job and you don't have friends like that. Um, did you have any like strategies to kind of meet new people or were you just kind of hoping they would come to you? Yeah. So that's why I put myself out there to do the football thing, even though like I knew there was no way I was making the team. It's like, I'm, I have no friends as it is. And the only way I can make friends is like by putting myself out there. And I mean, that was a, that was a good strategy. I met some really good people that like kind of stayed with me for the next four years of high school until I left for college. So yeah, that was worth it. As Sean can attest, I've lived in so many different places and had to move around a lot, but when you're an athlete, it's a little bit easier to make friends because you automatically have 28 new friends or however many it is with a new team. But uh, I feel like I was kind of the opposite. Like when I would go to high school, again, I went I went to school with Sean, so he was automatically one of my friends. But I felt I was more reserved, like didn't really like to talk to people, just kind of like to do my own thing. Um, but it's funny how different people kind of cope with that different situation. Um, and, and then you find out how to make it work. Yeah, it was definitely a lot easier to be uh, more reserved and have people come to you once I actually found like a sport that fit for me. So like I did cross country and track and like I competed at the state level and I was the captain and all that stuff. And I didn't have to try as hard there because it's easier to make friends when you're good at a sport. <laughs> so like once I found that niche, like that was like a hundred percent, like my friend group, like yeah, it's a lot easier when you're good at a sport. Yeah. And I think that's good advice too, because like Garrett talked about, you know, when he moved in, he had an automatic friend in me because we both played on a hockey team together. And you talk about how, you know, you found a sport that you're interested in and then that's the group you end up with. So, you know, if you are moving somewhere new, I think you just need to, you know, keep pursuing those things that you're interested in. And then you make one friend, they're going to introduce you to everyone else. And, you know, before you know it, you're right in that inner network. Yeah. And it's easiest to uh, draw the parallels with like sports, but I mean, it's the same thing with uh, all the clubs and stuff. You just have to put yourself out there. I remember one of my good friends, like he wasn't very athletic, but like he started the chess team, like, like, just anything where it's like, hey, like, where are people with common interests? And yeah, it worked for him. So just put yourself out there for sure. Yeah, that's the biggest thing is just finding things that you're interested in or finding, you know, a situation or a type of people that you want to be surrounded by. And when you, you know, dive into a situation like that, I think that you'll end up finding what you're looking for. Um, yeah. But kind of take, take, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, because uh, whenever you do that, you avoid changing yourself 
for what you think people want you to be, right? I was never someone who wanted to compromise and like pretend I was like this type of person, which is why it was so necessary for me to like go out and do all these things because I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not gonna pretend I'm like this type of person because it just, I just felt so phony, like I couldn't do that. Yeah, and I feel like in today's day and age too, it's hard to stay true to yourself with everything going on in the world and feel like how fake things have gotten. Um, but kind of taking a step back, you mentioned the the failure thing. And as we were talking before, you you talked about learning to fail fast and fail often. So how, how did you learn to use that, um, like moving forward? And how did that how did that like progress, I guess, as far as like a mindset shift? Because, you know, when I was younger, like when failure would happen, you kind of want to sulk in it. Um, and you tend to make it last longer than it should. And the sense of like mental aspects and it carries with you and can really affect you day to day. So how did that uh, transition happen of you kind of changing your mindset from, you know, failure being a bad thing to essentially failure being a good thing for you and you using it to learn and make yourself better? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, failure definitely sucks. But I think the thing that is the most crippling is the fear of doing something because you're afraid that you're going to fail, right? It's like the, the paralysis that like prevents you from ever taking a chance on yourself. And I think that's what I learned, right? I learned through, I mean, for like a, a skinny kid moving to a, a new city, like going out for the football team is probably like the most intimidating thing that like younger me could have done. But like, I learned it's like, hey, like it's, not that scary and even though you failed like it's okay like failure happened like you're still fine you you made friends like it, it's not so scary so i just learned to like not be crippled by the uh, possibility of failure just let it like just let it come yeah and like you mentioned before when we were talking uh fail fast fail often you kind of use that because the quicker you pursue those things the quicker you learn from it and then you start moving in the right direction too so it just not doing it because you're scared of it is just going to, you know, delay the inevitable and you're not going to get to where you want to go because you don't learn those lessons. Oh, absolutely. We'll talk about it a little bit later, but talking about fail fast, fail often. I mean, whenever I started this, uh, this business, <laughs> we immediately had to take a 180 shift from like uh, the brand that we thought was right. You know, like everything sounds so much better whenever you're talking about it than once like it. Like you, you hit the ground running. You're like, oh, this is a terrible idea. Like, okay, we can't just get stuck like in this. We got to fail fast, change direction, see how that takes us. And yeah. I feel like too, sometimes with failure, we get why it's obvious, but like you kind of set your own standard for like what failure is and what failure isn't. And I think a lot of the times, especially in some of our industries, as we were mentioning sports with football and stuff like that, um, we put too much emphasis on like the success of you know winning or scoring a goal or like doing a certain thing but I think when we kind of take a, a step back and look at it for as in other episodes people would define it or say it as like the sport doesn't define me who I am as a person when you kind of look at it like that and take a step back and realize that like you aren't the sport of hockey so everybody's going to fail but that doesn't really change who you are, who you should be, or your value to the team or life. Um, it makes things a lot easier, but also in sports, it's very hard because I feel like all of us tend to think that the value lies specifically in our ability to play that sport or do our job. Because when we don't do well, you, you know, like the teammates, may, your teammates may act different or like your coach may not talk to you. So it seems like all of the pressure and all the value is in you as an athlete instead of a person and a human being. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's even worse for this upcoming generation because like the way you talked about, you set your own uh, measure of failure is it's so easy to compare yourself to what other people's success is instead of like, like if you're just looking at yourself in a situation, it could be a huge success, but like, we don't do that these days because of social media. So you could have had like a huge win within like the context of your situation, but it's like, ah, but it's not a big win because this person, like look how much better they're doing it. When in reality, like 
the backstory is this person's been doing it 15 years, like they, they lost a whole bunch of opportunities and friends to be good at like such skill, but that's not what you see. All you see is like, oh, like I don't measure up. And like, that's that's like such a, a negating, negative crippling uh, thing that society has to deal with now that social media is so prevalent. Yeah, one of our other guests, Holden Reaping, a good friend of ours, uh, talked about how social media is the cookies and the cream. So, you know, all you see on there is the best stuff all the time. So like you said, you don't see all the sacrifices they made, the 15 years of hard work. And I think that's something that everyone needs to always have in mind when they're looking at that, because comparing yourself to others is just terrible for your mindset, because you'll never be them, they'll never be you, you just have to be the best version of yourself. And I think you guys have brought up a really good point too, about measuring failure and you know, how you look at it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a failure. If you look at it in the positive way of, oh, this is for my self-development. I know uh, I listened to a podcast, uh, the Hockey Think Tank with Topher Scott, another one of our guests. He talked about how when he coaches young kids, he doesn't let the defenseman, you know, bank the puck off the boards. Because at higher levels, you know, anytime you're in trouble, you just kind of, you know, throw it off the boards, like get rid of it. It's kind of like a you know, fight, live to fight another day sort of mindset. And he said, no, I don't let them ever do that because I want them to develop. I want them to try and, you know, make the harder plays and go through the middle. And yeah, you know, sometimes it's going to turn over, the other team's going to score. But at the end of the day, it's about that development down the road. It's not about, you know, was I successful this day on that specific play? And so I think it's just a, a mindset of, you know, I failed at trying to do this, but I learned I'm taking steps in the right direction. And if you look at it that way, you know, it won't weigh down on you as much. Yeah, no, that's great. So uh, when did you become interested in joining the military and how did you decide what branch and what route you were going to take to follow that passion? Yeah, growing up, I was always interested in the military. <clears throat> Again, I, I was a really hyper kid. And one thing that I knew for sure, like school was not my jam. Like you take like a really like about to explode kid and you're like, hey, sit down pay attention to this like really boring lesson like i knew school wasn't my thing so like my plan was always uh, once i graduated from high school like boom go into the military start doing something that i think is like really exciting interesting i mean i like i always idolized uh, people in the military my grand both of my grandfathers were in and i really looked up to them but uh, probably the most impactful thing that uh, my father ever did for me is he brought an argument to me he's like if you're actually serious about the military then go to the citadel like become an officer and like have like a big impact in the military like make a career out of it i was like okay like what's the citadel i wasn't looking at any colleges i don't know so he drove me down to the citadel and like i i was hooked like for those of you who don't know the citadel is like a a military academy in South Carolina and like young 17 year old Braden like looked around and I saw everything that I thought was like the antithesis or like not the antithesis like the pinnacle of like manliness they're just like these disciplined guys like running around like it was everything that I thought the military was so I, I just like fell in love with it so yeah to answer your question I was always interested in the military but my dad just convinced me, like, if I was actually serious about it, well, then just go into a military academy and, like, be a good officer. So me wanting to prove him, like, wrong just kind of did it for me. And then you talk about a lot of the tough times that, you know, it takes to actually becoming an officer in the military or a captain or whatever it may be um, in basic training as part of that. So, you know, looking back on it, what were some of the, the hard times that you remember having to go through? And did you ever have these moments of like, I don't want to do this anymore? Because when I think of, you know, basic training, and it's different depending on what field you're going into, whether it's SEALs, armies, whatever. But I, I picture the, the SEAL videos of the guys ringing the bell, like, hey, I'm done, you know, because I don't want to do this anymore. Did you ever have a like a thought process of I don't want to do this anymore? Or um, even hardships that pushed you to, you know, close of the brink of that point? Yeah, so never, there was never a, a physical uh, challenge that pushed me to that, that breaking point. Uh, like I was, again, very uh, gung-ho. So at the Citadel, like even as a, 
a freshman or as they call him a knob. Like I was trying to do everything. I was like on Ranger challenge team. So I was like waking up before everybody and everybody was already waking up at like 530. So I could like learn how to do like Swiss seats and like like Ranger knots and all this like ridiculous stuff. Like I competed and I got like an airborne slot and like only four kids like get an airborne slot per year. So like, I really loved the, the physical stuff, like pushing yourself, getting up early, like competing. But like, again, it was, it was the schooling. Like I really didn't want to be there. I only saw like my college education as like a, like a means to an end, like, okay, I have to get my degree so I can become an officer. And that really kind of bit me in the butt because like my last four semesters of college, like I had to get a letter from the Dean so I could exceed the credit limit. I had like 21 credit hours between 21 and 24 credit hours, like my last four semesters, because I just wasn't like as focused on like a diploma path. So like I had a whole bunch of like useless credits that were getting me towards like my degree. So like I had to go to overtime just to be able to meet the, uh, the requirement to get my degree so I could commission on time because I was like I was contracted with the army at that point. So yeah, never, never a physical challenge, but definitely just like the, the mental challenge of like taking academia seriously, which was really rough for me. So you worked there to be an officer and this is kind of a two-part question. Um, what would you say your leadership style was? And it's very different being in the field than, you know, learning in a classroom. So do you think you were prepared for that? Or did you have to grow a lot during that time to, you know, be the best leader you could be? Yeah, so, I mean, there's so many different types of leadership and it's all uh, contextual, right? So, the type of leader you have to be whenever you're at the Citadel and you're leading your peers, like that's a completely different leader than I had to be whenever I was in the military and I was a chemical response team leader and I had a team of 12 people, some of which are like 40, 45 years old, right? The challenge of coming into a unit, being 22 years old and trying to be like, the leader of like these guys who have like 20 years in the military was like such a, a learning curve. It was so brutal because like, obviously everyone there knows more than you. So you have to like earn everybody's respect. And like, luckily for me, I was athletic. I feel that was kind of my angle is like, I'll just keep my head down, like be a beast at PT so they can be like, okay, this kid's got something. And then whenever the opportunities like come for me to step up as a leader, like really kill it in those moments, instead of coming in and trying to like show people I'm the leader just because like my position says so, right? Like it's the difference between like uh, a social leader and a, uh, like an elected leader kind of, right? You have, you have to kind of be both and uh, yeah. I don't remember what the question was at this point, sorry. No, I think you answered it. I just kind of asked, you know, if, if you thought, if you felt prepared for that role or if you had to grow um, while you were there and I think that you definitely did. And I like that lead by example approach. I think it's the best way, you know, whether you're in an office, in the military, on the sports team, if, if you aren't doing your job, you can't tell other people to do their job. And so, uh, you know, when the leaders are the ones who are always going above and beyond, it creates that culture and then people want to do more. And Garrett and I have talked about this before, but we've been on teams where the culture is to stay in the gym and do extra reps, stay on the ice and work on stuff. And we've been on teams where, you know, it's a race to see who can get undressed quickest once practice is over. And so uh, the leaders set that culture and it sounds like you did a good job, even though, you know, some of these people were twice your age. Yeah, like the leading by example is so important because especially your your junior enlisted guys, like they are watching you like hawks to look for like a chink in your armor, a chink in your character. That way they have uh, reason to kind of undermine you, right? That That's all they're looking for is like, oh, like Lieutenant so-and-so, like he says this, but does this. Therefore, like I'm not going to take him seriously. So like you always have to be so diligent, which was really good because it makes it really easy. Like it's so much easier having uh, 
like juniors looking up to you to hold you accountable than it is to have a senior looking down on you holding you accountable right it just it just makes you want to like rise to the occasion every single day and uh, i really i really enjoyed that that part of it piggybacking off what sean said a little bit here uh you said you're 22 when you started to lead and i think that a lot of people are born with natural like born leadership qualities and it sounds like you're you're clearly one of those people but I'm curious, did you have like someone else in uh, the army that you kind of took after and took leadership qualities for? Or did you think you just kind of had this natural leadership and then also like a good work ethic uh, to do that kind of like lead by example style? Um, so curious, did you have kind of like a mentor where you took some you know notes to learn how to be a good leader? Yeah, so I definitely didn't have a uh, like a formal mentor that kind of like sat down with me and analyzed how I was doing and stuff like that. But whenever I first uh, got into my unit as a second lieutenant, like I was a staff officer, so I didn't have any anybody working for me or anything. And like during those times, like my, my XO and operations officer, like I was like watching them very closely to see how effective they were at motivating people because that was always my goal, right? I want people to be like motivated to do the work because like the military is a hierarchy, right? So like you can get people to do anything because it's like, hey, like I'm a staff sergeant, you're a corporal, like do it because I outrank you. And I never wanted that to be the case. I always wanted to be like, hey, create a, a culture where everyone feels like they're on the same team. And it's like, I wanna do a good job because I'm part of this team and like me doing a good job, like helps out everybody. And so it was, it was learning how to create that culture and like watching uh, my superiors and seeing like, okay, where are they failing? Where are they succeeding? And like success to me meant never having to rely on my rank. It always meant like getting people to do the task because they wanted to, because they felt part of a team. It's a great way of looking at that. I really like uh, how you describe that. And then also, you know, you're, you're talking about how to motivate people and keep them positive. And obviously, as I mean, many don't know by example, but can imagine being in the military, going on deployment, like you probably have, you know, feelings of loneliness, hopelessness. Uh, I'm sure guys suffer from depression and, and anxiety. So how did you learn to like approach helping these guys and keep them motivated uh, to do the tasks that you guys had to do? Yeah, that was really tough. So my first four months on deployment, I was a battle captain, which basically meant uh, there were two of us. So we would do 12 hour shifts every single day and we would basically be tracking the like the movement and the statuses like of all of our like forward deployed uh, units. That was during the time of the Mosul offensive. I was in a field artillery battalion, so we had a company that was always like on the ground supporting that offensive and then other companies would rotate in. So four months of 12 hour shifts behind the computer doing staff work, like learning about people that are like actually in the quote unquote fight while I'm sitting there not doing it was really, really tough, like mentally. It just, you just get really depressed. You kind of ask questions like, like, why am I here? Am I even making a difference? Like, does what I'm doing matter? And that was a, a really defining moment for me because uh, one of the people attached to our unit, her name was Captain Tursevich. She was a uh, the doc assigned to our unit. And we, were, we would always talk and she was always really nice. And she's like, hey, you kind of seem like you're in a funk. Like, do you want to volunteer with me in the combat aid station? And like, I had nothing going on whenever I wasn't working. So I was like, sure, like, why not? Like, I, I feel like real hopeless right now. And like, that was the turning point to me where like, she brought me back for the dead. Like just being like adjacent to someone who was like, meeting with people and like making a difference in their lives and like serving them like medically. I don't know. It just like, like relit a fire in me. And I was like, wait a minute, maybe the thing that I was searching for, like by joining the military, like the opportunity to help people, like maybe this isn't my outlet for doing it. Maybe like it's medicine. And like, that was like the first time I'd ever had that thought. 
I didn't have it in high school, didn't have it in college, right? Some people always talk about like, oh, I wanted to be a doctor ever since I was a kid. Like I wasn't that person, but being there and like seeing like the look of like relief on someone's face whenever like they have like a problem that like they're scared, like it, like an infected toe because they were too afraid to get it looked at. And then just like helping them through that, disinfecting it, like removing whatever the problem was and just like seeing their relief and like happiness uh, just I don't know that was that was a really big really big turning point for me during that deployment that's awesome it seems like you know for most of the things we've talked about you're always trying to make a difference and it's it's a really awesome trait to have uh, we've talked a lot about the hard times but uh, briefly are there any any good memories from your deployment that you can share with us yeah so this this continues to answer the other question, but it will bring in some fun times. So the second half of the, the deployment is whenever I was a security force platoon leader. So they moved me and a, a ragtag bunch of people from a whole bunch of different units to the Shweba port to do like security there. And that was really tough because it was like, okay, like now you have people you're responsible for. Like, it doesn't matter like how you feel. It doesn't matter if you're feeling depressed or hopeless because like, now you have 25 guys that like are probably also feeling the same thing. So like now you're responsible for them. So like for a lot of platoon leaders on deployments, like keeping people safe is usually because they're in combat and like they need to be like strategically good. They need to just keep their people safe from the enemy. But for my deployment, the enemy was like depression like themselves. So I remember I had to get really creative creating an environment where like people felt like they were part of that family and like had opportunities to have fun, right? I had guys on like on my list where I was like, hey, I need to look out for this person. Like his girlfriend back home just broke up with him. He's been staying in the barracks like whenever he's not working, like not hanging out with friends he normally does. Like, okay, like how can I bring these people out of their situation and then make them feel part of a team. So really as a platoon leader, most of my time is spent like putting together like a soccer league, uh, putting together like ping pong tournaments and volleyball and stuff like that. Like, it's like, what, that doesn't sound like a deployment. It's like, well, whenever you realize the biggest thing that these people are struggling with is like, like depression and feeling lost, like that was actually the thing that I needed to be in that moment. So that was the fun times, like, yeah, like having a soccer league and everything, like that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's funny to think of the things that you will need to do to be successful in your time. Like I'm sure when you were being trained to become an officer, it was all very technical. And, um, you know, the team that you led, uh, what was it again, the chemical response team? Yeah, all very technical things that you were learning. You probably never thought, you know, helping people's morale and, you know, dealing with their mental health is going to be such a big thing. Yeah, they never talk about that. But uh, unfortunately, uh, our sister platoon, the uh, only casualty that they had on the deployment was due to a soldier taking their own life because it's it was just really rough. So whenever we were uh, the security force, right, there were 12 hour shifts but you had to wake up early, like eat chow, then go to the armory and get your weapon and then like get on a bus and then like go 30 minutes to the unit, like the place where you're doing your 12 hour shift and you come back and do the same thing over again. So like those days were long, those were 16, 18 hour days where <laughs> it really grinds on you. And like, that was such a, a scary moment for me whenever that happened because the questions run through your mind. Like, am I doing enough? Like that could have been someone in my unit. Like, am I looking out for all my guys? Is anybody falling through the cracks? And these aren't things that they teach you. Like you were saying, whenever you're learning to be an officer or like an NCO, like they teach you like tactics, military doctrine. They don't tell you like, Hey, these are things to look out for because these are like the silent killers. And like, that was really surprising that I had to kind of learn that on my own. I feel like leaders sometimes come with that, uh, like almost caring, uh, I guess not all the times, but in my opinion, a lot of the leaders that I've dealt with, they kind of have those like caring characteristics. They may not show it all the time, but occasionally you'll see it where they'll reach out like, hey, how are you doing? 
um, and check in on you that way. But it's funny that you talk about that because to my knowledge, they don't really teach you how to take care of people in that manner in leadership. And I think that's a big part of it because if you can control or help someone with their mental health, I think then then they're more clear and conscious and can fo- focus on whatever task that is. We're in the military, obviously it's uh, a mission. And then in sports, it's winning a game or doing whatever you need to do uh, for the week. Um, but yeah, they, they don't teach that, which uh, maybe now as things continue to develop, that'll be a tool that they can add in. Um, or if, you know, you were teaching someone to take over your position or be in a similar role, you can take your experience and pass that on to them. Yeah, for sure. In the military, they have this thing called like left seat, right seat. It's basically whenever you have uh, a new person coming in to fill your position and you're on your way out, you kind of like go over your, your lessons learned journal. And that's, that's such an important uh, opportunity to be like, hey, like this is what you learn in school and this is what I've learned being in this position. Like this is what you need to be for these people. And uh, yeah, hopefully moving forward, uh, there's there's more of an emphasis on it because it's usually not a lack of technical competence that, uh, that gets in people's way, right? It's just people themselves getting in their way, right? C- can they handle the stress of like, three games a week and then like all these people expecting them to make like the the big goal like they know how they know how to shoot but can they handle the stress that kind of accumulates on them yeah i think the biggest thing is too obviously the mental health but the self-destruction happens in their own mind and your own thoughts and what you uh decide to listen to or you know what you what information can you take in um and you can either poison yourself and start to go down a dark road Um, or try to see like the brighter light. Uh, But it's funny that, you know, you were talking about how in high school, you you weren't very good at school. um, And now you're in medical school. So how did that like shift happen where like, you didn't really like school? And now obviously, like, that's your life. Um, And did you kind of ever, were you ever worried about going to medical school? Because in the past, you obviously didn't really enjoy school. Clearly a big uh, age gap. But did you ever have that worriness? So maybe for a little bit, but like, again, like when I was younger, I learned that like failing isn't such a big deal. So I knew that there were huge gaps in my education, right? I didn't have like any chemistry classes, but one of the things that you need to get accepted into medical school, you have to take an exam called the MCAT. Well, (laughs) The first section is like 90% chemistry. So like I had to take an online class with that. Uh, I didn't directly get accepted to medical school. Actually, my my first step, uh, I understood that I didn't have the the academic background to be able to go straight into medical school. So whenever I took the MCAT while I was still in the military, it was to get into the master's program at MUSC. So the Medical University of South Carolina has a master's in medical science program. So luckily I did well enough on the MCAT. I did great at uh, my master's program and I got accepted to USC School of Medicine. Uh, But yeah, did if you asked me like six years ago, hey, do you think you'll have a master's degree and be working on your doctorate? I'd be like, what do you mean? I'm gonna be career military. But it's, it's funny how uh, you have your own plans for your life and God has his plans for your life. And from my experience, his plans are always better than my own plans. Like when I was at the Citadel, everything that I was doing was uh, preparing me to become a career military person, right? I wanted to be infantry. I wanted to move on from there to be either in the Ranger Battalion or Special Forces. Like I, I was that type of person always trying to, to reach the next level. But you don't choose your uh, you don't choose your branch unless you're in the top 10%. And I was probably top 15, 20%. So whenever it came time to give out branches, like I got chemical officer. It's like, okay, that's definitely not infantry. It's like, okay, no, no problem. I'll make it work. Right. So I show up to my unit, right. I max my PT test. I impress the right people. I'm like, okay, I really want to go to ranger school. I talk to my battalion commander. He's like, fine, do the, like the ranger physical fitness test. 
and uh, see if you can get in. So I max that, I get a slot for January. We have a new battalion commander come in and he says, look son, if you really wanna to go to ranger school, then you'll still want it whenever we get back from deployment. Well, deployment was four months after my ranger school like slot would have ended, right? Like the school would have been done and then four months happens, then we go on deployment, but he still canceled it for me. So yeah, it's crazy how like God had a plan for my life that was <laughs> so different from my own plan, which was like be a career like special forces guy. It's like, no, actually you may hate school right now, but I'm gonna mature you and you're going to be a physician. Like I never saw that coming. Yeah, Garrett and I are definitely big believers that things happen for a reason. And, uh, you know, sometimes you just have to ask God to, you know, show you that path and, you know, make it clear the way you need to go. And that's something that, you know, I've been doing more of lately. And uh, it's definitely helped my mindset and just kind of, you know, there's no reason to stress about things. You know, life's going to come. You have a plan. You have a path. You know, just do it to the best of your ability. Um, but the path to become a doctor is already very long. And because you were in the military before that, you started a little late. Were you ever worried about starting later than most people? No, I wasn't worried about the age thing. Obviously, I did the math. I was like, okay, one year's a master's, uh, four years of medical school, six years of residency, two years of fellowship. I was like, man, once I'm finally an attending physician, I would be so old. So obviously, I did that math. But it was, it was just more important to me to have a career where I felt like I was having an impact and I had meaning in what I was doing. And like the money like doesn't matter. It's like, oh, you're not going to make money for 14 years. It's like, okay, but like, am I going to feel fulfilled during those 14 years? And like, who cares? You talked about trying to learn a new language, but uh, it's for a very specific reason. Can you tell us about the medical outreach you're hoping to do? Yeah, so uh, I founded a cryptocurrency company called uh, Medical Pool. And one of the things that we do with the company is we partner with charities to support them. So one of the charities that we partner with is One World Health. So they're based out of Charleston. Uh, they've been around for 13 years now and they have built hospitals in Uganda and Nicaragua and they have this awesome mission of creating sustainable infrastructure. So they go into underserved areas, uh, they build out the hospital system, all the infrastructure, uh, they collaborate with the locals there, they get nurses and doctors from the local region hired with the goal of in 18 to 24 months they want that hospital to be fully self-sufficient. They don't need any uh, charitable donations or anything. And if they can be a self-sufficient hospital, like they completed their goal. So yeah, we, we met with them last week to talk about kind of uh, how our two companies can work together. And uh, we're going to be doing some volunteer work uh, this December. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's really important to me to find ways to give back in ways that aren't serving myself. So like the reason One World Health to me was different is because I didn't want to uh, go somewhere, serve a region for a few weeks, give the medicine, and then that region, like what are they gonna do the rest of the year? Okay, we go two times a year. It's like, okay, we. I just like the idea of giving these people the tools that they need and then believing like like these people are more than capable of like handling healthcare finances all this stuff they, they just need the tools like they just need the infrastructure so yeah learning another language so i'll be able to go to central america or africa or wherever there's a need is uh could be a really cool way to interact with people and like grow grow a community yeah absolutely and how are you balancing that right now, the cryptocurrency business with med school and where do you see that heading down the road? Yeah, so these days I find myself uh, reading a lot, which I mean, younger me would kind of laugh at. So one of the books that I was reading is called The One Thing and it talks about uh, 
the whole idea of balance in life is is kind of like a fallacy that people are always chasing, right? You have like self-help gurus that are like, oh, this is how you achieve balance in life. But like, I personally found that's not really something that's achievable. And this book describes it as a, you find counterbalances in life. So there, there are seasons in your life where you have to be very focused on uh, your career or your sport or whatever it is, because that's just what's required to be successful in a way. But then you also have to counterbalance with the things that you also find important. So luckily I have like a very uh, supportive, beautiful wife who understands like this counterbalance kind of approach that I take to life. So like during the semester, there are a few things that are like our major priorities to me, uh, medical school, obviously, and now this crypto business, and that tends to eat up a majority of my time. So what I'm doing to counterbalance that is like, okay, now whenever it's the summer, and those things aren't stealing my time, I have to counterbalance it with the other things that I find very important. So making an effort to make sure I'm spending a ton of time with family and friends and like rebuilding and nursing those uh, relationships because I know that soon it's going to tip the other way and I'm going to have to put all my energy back into the things that's taking away from those things. So that's kind of how I uh, approach it, right? It's just kind of a, a counterbalance. Yeah, as you mentioned too, and it sounds like a good read that you're having, but having that healthy balance is always good. But as you mentioned, it's something that we're always chasing, right? It's kind of like, almost like trying to be perfect, knowing that we'll never be perfect. Um, but to have that healthy balance in life, like keeps us in equilibrium and almost seems like life is easier that way. And uh, you kind of enjoy it more when you do have that sort of balance and uh, healthiness in your life. But you, you mentioned it earlier and uh, kind of in the cryptocurrency thing, but we talked about Bitcoin a little bit and Ethereum. So I kind of have a story that I, I was seeing a video the other day, so I wanted to ask you about it. But uh, when Bitcoin first came out, like obviously it, it wasn't worth a lot. And uh, there was this guy that bought two like Papa John's pizzas <laughs> for 10,000 10, Bitcoin. And I did the math yesterday and it would have been worth like $380 million or something crazy like that. So um, I guess the point of the question is, do you, do you kind of see crypto uh, maybe taking over like currency? And then also like how big do you think crypto could get? Yeah, the, uh, the Bitcoin pizza is marked on a whole bunch of people's calendars and they talk about it every single year because everybody likes to kind of giggle like, oh man, he spent like hundreds of million dollars on a pizza. But like, in my opinion, he didn't spend hundreds of millions of dollars on pizza. If we didn't have those uh, early adopters taking that step to exchange a cryptocurrency for a product, right? We would never have the 30, 40, 50, $60,000 Bitcoin, right? It's only because those people like put in the groundwork, believed in a project, like took the strides to like build trust so you can actually trade it for goods. So yeah, it's always fun to be like, oh, this $300 million pizza. But it was actually a really big deal that a pizza company took Bitcoin for pizza. Yeah, I don't know a whole lot about the crypto. So my question may be a little basic, but I think the big argument against it is that, you know, it's not backed by anything like, you know, the paper money we have is backed by the gold and the Federal Reserve. So, mm -hmm. no, no, not since 1970s. Yeah, 1970s, we uh, came off of the gold standard. And uh, yeah, ever since uh, the U.S. dollar is actually not backed by a gold or anything like that. So, no, I, I get the argument that a uh, cryptocurrency isn't uh, backed by any tangible thing, but it's, it's a deflationary asset. So there is a, so we can use Bitcoin, for example, right now, because it's the most uh, common and like well understood. So there's a finite amount of Bitcoin that can be mined, right? So I think it's something like 21 million Bitcoin only 21 million Bitcoin like will ever exist, right? So whereas with the US dollar, it's inflationary because your $1 in like five years may only have the spending power of 80 cents because they printed trillions of dollars. And like literally it's not worth as much because it's a smaller piece of the pie. So I don't think that 
So early on, that was like a big uh, challenge that they had to overcome, like establishing legitimacy, like, okay, like, do people actually uh, care enough about cryptocurrency to believe in it? But I mean, with crypto being a, I think right now, it's like a $1.6 trillion market for cryptocurrency. Uh, I think enough people globally believe in it. Like, for example, like Nigeria, like 70% of like Nigerians, like transact with uh, cryptocurrency. And it's a lot easier to understand and think about the use cases in a non-American uh, mindset, right? So like, why do we need another uh, financial system in the United States? We have Visa, PayPal, Venmo, like we have so many, like why does it matter to us? Well, it matters way more to someone that's in like an unstable nation where there's a lot of corruption, there, isn't a lot of like interoperability between like countries because it's like, eh, I don't acknowledge your currency. I don't think it's worth what it is. So being able to have like a, a global currency that no actor can uh, manipulate by printing more and devaluing other people's currency is like very, it's a very valuable system. Just playing devil's advocate here, not trying to argue with you too much, but uh, I would say that there is some corruption in the crypto because, you know, you saw Elon Musk says, oh, you can buy Teslas with Dogecoin. So Dogecoin, you know, goes through the roof and then he tweets something else out and says, oh, we're no longer doing that. So then, you know, it goes down to the floor. I guess, do you see it becoming stable at a point soon where the value of it, you know, won't be fluctuating as much as it is right now? Yeah, so Elon Musk market manipulation, very, uh, very hot topic right now because, yeah, he sends a tweet and you could literally like look at the charts like Elon Musk tweet, does the chart go down or up because of what he said? But the reason that's the case right now is because the crypto market is a very uh, speculative market, right? People aren't investing in a cryptocurrency because they see the real world use cases, right? Like with Dogecoin, uh, Bitcoin, the only use case for those things is a medium of exchange of like financial exchange, right? There's, that is the real world application. Now you move over to something like uh, Ethereum or Cardano, where it's like, okay, these are more of a blockchain company, right? They have actual use cases some something like Cardano is like trying to be the Cisco of the cryptocurrency world where like half of the country runs off of Cisco, but you don't see like billboards for Cisco, right? So you'll have all of these digital applications, uh, decentralized finance, like microloaning things all on top of an infrastructure. And that's where things are going to start, stop being so volatile because it's like, okay, there's actual use cases okay, we can actually treat this more like a company because we can see that there are uh, 5 billion daily transactions, uh, this many companies operating on it. So we can actually like peg what we believe the, the asset is worth. So yeah, the reason crypto fluctuates so much is because it's just a speculative market because there's no uh, like use case you can tie it to. Before we get off the topic, I know, uh, you know, your company's just starting up, but, you know, is there a way that our listeners can kind of, you know, find a website or is there a way that they can kind of get involved with what you're doing? Yeah, so uh, we have a, a great team, uh, Corey and Sarah, they've been working really hard to make crypto more accessible to people. So on our website, medicalstakepool.com, stake, S-T-A-K-E. Uh, we have a what is crypto tab, how to stake tab that basically takes someone who doesn't know anything about crypto, uh, explains it in simple terms. So you can go from like a novice to actually being able to have a conversation about crypto with some like great infographics. And then there it also talks about like, okay, what is our mission? Uh, how are we having an impact on the world? And how does you simply owning Cardano have an impact, right? It's uh, with proof of stake systems, it's really interesting to where like my uh, my company, like I don't have a product to sell. Like you you don't donate any money to me. Like that's not how it works. It's, it's basically like 
when you delegate your ADA, so like if you have your ADA, which is the Cardano token in your wallet and you have 1000 ADA, it's basically like you have 1000 votes, right? So you use those votes to vote on pools that you'd say are good actors, right? And simply voting that a pool is a good actor will generate you like a return on your investment. So like the average annual percentage yield of just simply owning Cardano and voting on a pool is 5.5%. So that's literally how people make money by interacting with my company. You literally just vote that I'm a good actor for the space and that's it. Like you still own the money, like the money never leaves your wallet. So it's, it's like a really, it's a really cool system. Yeah, it's awesome. And I definitely need to go on the website to you know, learn a bit more about it. And I can ask you some more uh, in-depth questions next time. Uh, but I did want to bring up your wife is a canine trainer, which I think is a really cool job. How did she start that? And uh, how well-trained are your three dogs? <laughs> yeah, so uh, she is the founder of Coastal Canine. That's her business. And she's all, always loved dogs uh, ever since she was younger. And I really pushed her to be like, okay, like if this is something you're really passionate about, like make it, a, make it a career. Like don't be dog adjacent, just like dive into it. So like I took the dive with her. She found a coastal canine. She uh, is formally trained with a company in uh, South Carolina called Georgia canine. And she knows how to do trailing detection, obviously obedience. So like our own dogs, uh, Loki and Cubby know how to do trailing work, which is basically like where you take a scent article and it's like, okay, go find where that person is out in the woods, which is like a ton of fun to do. But yeah, our dogs are pretty well trained. We can unleash them, just have them walk around with us. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's really nice having well-trained dogs. You, you love them a lot more when they're well-trained. <laughs> yeah. A thousand percent. If you're in, uh, South Carolina, you need dog training, hit this man up. Oh, for sure. Get your dogs well-trained. Uh, Braden, we can't thank you enough for coming on. It was great to hear your story and, uh, you know, growing up and everything, going in the military, you seem like a very intelligent individual with, uh, you know, a lot of goals and uh, keep striving to accomplish them. So we wish you nothing but the best uh, in the future. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like we covered a ton of topics. Uh, thanks for coming on. And, you know, maybe we'll have to have you on again in the future. Sure. Anytime. I love it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Adversity University. You can follow more news about Adversity University on our social media pages. Our Instagram handle is Adversity underscore University. Our Twitter handle is Adversity underscore UNIV. And our Facebook page is Adversity University. If you know of any high-level athlete or professional that has an interesting story of overcoming adversity and you think they should share it, you can email us at adversityuniversitytalkshow at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you are interested in becoming a sponsor for Adversity University. We look forward to bringing our listeners more content from interesting guests weekly, so stay tuned on social media to see who could be next and what our past guests are up to now.